Hi, beautiful beings. Welcome back to the Soulful and Authentic podcast. This is episode three of season one, and I'm Joanne Oswald-Jones, your host. Today's episode is entitled Finding My Strength Within led to an Olympic gold medal. We have a very, very special guest on the show today, Mark Colbin, MBE. Not only is Mark a truly inspirational and motivational speaker, he's also a gold medalist, Paralympic cycling champion. This man knows how to tap into his personal strength. And this man knows how to push through tremendous adversity with razor sharp focus and self-belief. In 2009, Mark broke his back in a near-fatal paragliding crash, which left him with lower leg paralysis. But refusing to allow his injuries to stop him from living an action-packed life and pushing the boundaries, he began to cycle. This focus, this energy, this determination and personal strength led him to being selected for the London 2012 Paralympic Games. His journey and story will have you biting your nails, sitting on the edge of your seat with anticipation. It's an amazing story. And so without further ado, allow me to introduce you all to Mark Colburn, MBE. Mark, it is such a pleasure to have you here. I am so excited about this conversation with you because, as you know, the series of the Soulful and Authentic podcast, this series is all about finding your strength within. And I think there are so many people out there who are going to be listening to this and who are going to be so inspired by you and your story and, wow, just everything you've achieved and this incredible strength and that you had to dig as deep as you did. So shall we just dive straight in? Because there's so much I want to find out, so much I want to find out. But And I want to go back to the beginning because I think it helps everybody who's listening into this to, to build a picture. I mean, you know, they don't know you. So it'd be so lovely to go back to childhood. Take me back to those early days, that little Mark Colburn. And I want to know why you're known as Margaret's boy. That's yes. the, I want to know about this. I want to know about this little boy <laughs> of Wales before we hear the whole big journey. Yes, yes. Well, first and foremost, Joanne, um, I just want to say, you know, thank you. Um, you know, it's a pleasure being on your podcast. And for all of you listeners, you know, obviously listening to this at a later date, um, you know, we, we've sort of known each other for a long time, even though we've sort of not spoken for some time. But the first thing that I wanted to do, you know, was just say thank you for inviting me on. It gives me an opportunity to, I guess, reach out, you know, to to more people, to a different network, to a bigger network. And certainly now as an international speaker, you know, it's great to, I suppose, put myself, you know, my winning messages, my key principles, um, you know, in front of a new audience. So, uh, So first and foremost, you know, obviously, thank you. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great question to kick off with, really, really, isn't it? You know, such a pleasure. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think Margaret's Boy was a title I was given, you know, after winning, um, you know, my gold medal at the the London 2012 Paralympic Games. You know, and uh, I, I suppose I, you know, sit here today as a very proud Paralympian, as a proud international speaker, having presented at well over 200 conferences around the world. In the last, you know, ten years, this year is the anniversary of London 2012. So it, um, 
yeah, it it it, it actually gives me goosebumps, Joanne, to, to think about it, you know. But but let let's you know, let's set the scene. Let's um you know, let's take the take the audience back, you yeah. know, to the nineteen seventies when, you know, I was growing up in South Wales. And for many of your listeners who you know, maybe have been born in the 80s, 90s or the thousands, shall we say, that, you know, they, they wouldn't know um, what I went through as a child. And what I mean by that is this, you know, I was born, you know, the, the son of Margaret and my dad's name was Cecil or Cecil for some people who pronounce it differently. And when I was born in 1969, you know, I remember growing up in the 70s and first and foremost, just to, to paint the picture for your audience, I grew up in a very small mining town in South Wales called Tredegar. Now, many people won't know, you know, I've never heard of Tredegar, but it was the home of the NHS. And it was the home of a wonderful gentleman, even though I never met him because unfortunately he passed away, you know, before I was born, which was Aniron Bevan. Now, Aniron Bevan was a Labour politician, you know, obviously a, a great speaker who spoke for the people to the people. And, you know, when he launched the NHS, you know, long before I was born, it, it just gave the environment, you know, the, the mining town that was Tredegar, it, it put it on the map. You know, it really did. And when I was growing up, the reason why I want to share this is because when I was growing up, I kept hearing this name, Aniron Bevan, you know, all the time. And I said to my parents, Who, who's this guy? You know, <laughs> who's this Who's this?" Who's this name, you know? So when my parents explained who he was, what he did, how he, you know, founded and launched the NHS, it, it stayed with me, okay? It really stayed with me. And there's, there's, there's a great point of me sharing that message to your listeners at this point in the podcast, okay? I, I was going to say, what, what does this come later or what was it? Okay, this comes later. Okay. This comes later, okay? So, so this is now obviously sharing a different story that has a, an incredible poignancy later on, okay, okay later on. So remember Aniron Bevan and my association with the NHS, you know, obviously being the town of Tredegar, okay? okay. So, so to kick off, okay, Margaret's boy, you know, this young, <coughs> excuse me, you know, the, this young lad, you know, five, six, seven years of age, you know, remembering the, the Silver Jubilee in 1977, you know, running around in shorts and t-shirt, enjoying the three or four months of, you know, summer holidays. It was, it was a great time of freedom. Okay. And I guess, you know, with no brothers or sisters, I suppose I had to, you know, scrap and fight for everything that I suppose gave me pleasure, you know, whether that was riding my bike or chasing girls. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think for, for my childhood, it was a, a an amazing childhood. Okay, it, good relationship with your parents. Yes, a hundred percent. Mom and dad. You know, my mother was a caretaker of a local school, yeah. and um, my dad worked for British Steel. You know, as a crane driver. You know, for forty years. So, as a as a working class family, you know, we didn't have very much. You know, we really didn't. But everything that we had, you know, as a family was um, was shared with love. Okay, yeah. it was shared with fun. Okay, you know, shared with great humor, um, not not necessarily sarcasm. Okay, but but just great wholehearted fun, you know. And that for me, that um, continued right through the seventies, right into the eighties, you know, until I started, you know, obviously then going to to comprehensive school, 
you know, which, um, which, yeah, was, it was a great experience because I got to play sport every day. And, and it was this um, sport, obviously, you know, you're a professional athlete now. Was this something that was in your mind as a young child I mean I know we you know you know whether you want to be a a fireman or a nurse or but you know you tend to have a as a child you tend to have a knowing so was sport important to you when you were young as a little boy not necessarily sport Joanne but the but the feeling of movement okay Okay. and I speak about this now okay I speak about this on stage that the importance of movement to the human body it does two things it gives us natural pleasures through yeah. dopamine, through cortisol, you know, yeah. all of the, the, the chemicals that get released when we move, okay? But secondly, it keeps us healthy. 100%. So to have that optimum health as a teenager, because for me, movement, and I mean sport, and all different kinds of sport, okay? The, the feeling of movement, the feeling of being tired, the feeling of exhaustion, okay, was a great feeling because then that helped to keep the optimum health uh, as a teenager, okay, N- not knowing at the time that I had optimum health. I was never ill. Yeah. All yeah. through my childhood, all through my teenage years, even into my 20s, Touchwood, <laughs> you know, I-, I was never, ever ill. And that was the reason. Lots of movement, lots of sport, good food. Lots of recovery, good yeah. sleep, you know, and, yeah. and all of those pillars has stayed with me all my life. You know, even now I'm 52 now, you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore, but I still ride the bike three or four times a week. I'm still conscious of what I eat. I try and get as much sleep as I can, you know. Okay. Um, I don't drink alcohol, which is my choice. But but that that point I'm trying to make is I've had that feeling and those um, beliefs all my life, you know? So interesting that you say that because this morning I, I do something which is called a one hour, 45 minute life plan and um, a long story, but it's, it's in the book and it's, you know, but I walk every day other, in addition to other sports, but I walk every day for one hour, 45 minutes. And it's so interesting that you say about movement because this morning I heard something and I heard a woman say, what would you, if this was your last day on earth, okay, in a physical body, what would you miss? And I sat there this morning with a cup of tea thinking, I would miss this cup of tea because I love my Earl Grey tea. Um, and when I was out walking, I was like, I would miss this so much. I would miss so much being able to walk and be in nature and just my body moving. So I really, I, I'm really with you on that one, Mark. We are, we are so fortunate to be here experiencing life in a physical body and to be able to move and, 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 and live and experience so totally, totally with you. And, and I think, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. And I totally agree with you. And the one thing I remember just to finish on my childhood a, a moment was the feeling of, you know, I just, I just couldn't wait to go out on my bike or play cricket or play football or rugby or go swimming. Okay. And yet maybe many other children, they, they, they didn't see the benefit. They didn't feel the benefit. You know, and, you know, my parents at the time, you know, I I think I was probably around that sort of early teenage years. You know, my parents, 
said to me, you know, for God's sake, just calm down, calm down, <laughs> just, you know, and I think my dad's words were that I, I never had a stop button. Oh. Okay. And, and, and both later on in life, then obviously he, he, he proved he was right. <laughs> 100%, 100%. So talk to me then about, so we had this active child, you loved that you, you, you've got these core pillars that you still live, live your life by now. Um, and sport was massively important, the movement was important. So then that propelled you, didn't it? As a young, you know, as a young adult, you were very, very sporty, very active. And were you going somewhere with that at that point? What, you know, was it in your mind thinking, okay, so this is something that makes me feel great. I love the feeling of exhaustion after working out. I love the fact that it helps me sleep. I love the fact that it makes me feel so fantastic. Were you thinking, I want to become a professional athlete? You know, I want to use this as my career and my, yeah, you know. Definitely. Well, I, I, I think I was probably around 16, 15 or 16 and I wanted to become a, a PE teacher right? Okay, for two reasons. One, obviously, it was a, a great opportunity to be part of the education system, you know, with regards to having a career. Um, and secondly, to help other people. Now, the reason why I say this, and this is where, <clears throat> this is where we dip into the Aniron Bevan story with the NHS. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed, this is a personal thing. I've always enjoyed helping other people. Right. Okay. It's, it's been in me all my life. It's just, it's in my DNA. Yeah. Okay. I really enjoy the contribution, reciprocity, helping other people for, for no gain. Okay. <laughs> for nothing in, in return. Did that come from your parents? Were they like that? Was that something that they instilled in you? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. The first thing when you said then about um, enjoying your cup of tea, yeah. my, my mother came to mind because my my mother used to invite people in you know the local community or neighbors or even sometimes the postman you know <laughs> would you like a cup of tea <laughs> it was just the offering that, the that was given. yeah 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 so for for me then um i went to college for two years mm-hmm. to study sports science okay and thoroughly enjoyed it because it wasn't just the physical aspect it was the psychology aspect the biomechanical aspect, the nutritional aspect. Yeah. So it's learning all these subjects uh, around the, the I the suppose, the pillars, yeah. you know, the, the, the pillars of optimum health. And, and everything started to make sense, okay? Everything started to make sense, you know? Um, and then at the age of 21, I got married. Okay. So, 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 so everything changed then. <laughs> So you gave up sport or you gave up the idea of a, a professional career with sport? Yeah, I gave up um I gave up the opportunity, I guess, you know, to um to go into physical education, should I say. Right. Um, you know, and I started working, you know, I got married and just settled into a normal life. But I still trained, you know, two or three times a week. Um and then after, you know, sort of three or four years, my daughter Jessica came along. And then it was that laser focus then to provide for my family, you know. I was going to say, where where was the, um, during that time when sort of sport took a secondary role, for, for want of a better word, obviously, you know, the marriage and the providing for the family. Um, 
Was it always there, though? Was that inner nudge, that inner thought always there that something was missing from your life and that you needed to get back into being very physical? Very much so. And I remember having conversations with you know my friends when I was in college about becoming a professional athlete, you know, and, you know, this was sort of around, um, you know, around the sort of 1990, 1991 time. Sure. And uh, a lot of my friends, you can imagine, they were like, professional athlete, are you having a laugh? Just, yeah. just go and work for the council or become a policeman or, you know, because it was such a rare opportunity to become a professional athlete. Because back then, Joanne, hardly any profession was paid. Do you know what I mean? So you you couldn't have a career and be paid because most people back then who were athletes or professional sportsmen, they worked part time. Isn't you know? it so strange how, you know, we we have changed and evolved. And, you know, when you look back from many, many years ago, how fearful and the fear driven society that, you know, we've been in and, and, and to for many, many people brought up in that, you know, you can't almost like to to not give credence to that dream, to that inner wanting and, and, and needing to achieve something sort of outside of the norm when actually we so deserve it. You know, we we deserve to follow our passion. And well, you did. You did. You you didn't let it go away. You know, it was a calling for you. I, I think, yeah. And, and you've knocked the nail on the head there. You know, the, the calling or the feeling or the passion mm. that people have inside. There's, in my opinion, there's normally three or four barriers that stopping people being their authentic self. Yeah. First thing is people prejudging them. Yeah, fear. Okay? Because they want to do something, you know, so crazy. Mm. Okay. Nobody else thinks it's possible. And I'll never forget those conversations in college where many of my friends basically were like, oh, you know, you, you've got no chance to be a, a an Olympic champion or a professional athlete or a world champion. Okay. But my point is the feeling, the feeling of passion yeah. stayed with me for the next 20 years. And we'll come on to we'll come on to that subject in a few minutes, okay? But interestingly enough, question there, Mark. Did your parents, when you were younger, you know, this is something I have, I'm sure you've done with Jessica, and I have instilled in my daughters that they can do anything they want. They are powerful beyond belief. You know, um, anything they want, they can have if they've got that drive and that passion. Did you have that? Did your parents? instill that in you when you were little did they say mark you can be what you want you can do what you want yes and no more traditional yeah yeah yes and no very traditional okay and i'll share this with you and i don't mind sharing this with the listeners of course because you may have heard it before but my parents were all about happiness okay whatever you want to do that makes you happy then do it go with it okay because my dad shared this message with me i think i was about 10 10 or 11, that uh, the, the, the conversation about life, you know, over a kitchen table one day, maybe having a cup of tea, for instance. And my dad said, well, just be careful with what you do, because remember that one day in the future, tomorrow will be your last day. Oh, wow. And I said, sorry. Awful. He said, yeah, just remember that, you know, we don't live forever. So just be careful and look after, you know, this this amazing machine as in our body. 
and I started to cry. And, and, and I said, I said to my mother, I said, what, why, what, why is he, why is he, t- why is he telling me this? You know? And she said, he's telling you for your own good. Aww. Now, my mother had Irish blood. Okay. And my mother was a really hardworking woman. And I mean, hard as nails. Okay. Honestly, she, she was a tough cookie. And my dad was the very philo- philosophical, you know, thought-provoking, quiet gentleman. And my dad was known as Mr. Nice Guy because oh, he was. Beautiful. You know, he, he really was a, a true gent. But he wanted me to have these um, key messages at a young age, okay, because I, 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 just, I just had so much energy as a kid, Okay, I'd literally leave the house on a Saturday morning at like nine o'clock after breakfast. My mum wouldn't see me till six o'clock in the night. And I'd probably I'd I'd be out riding my bike. I probably used to do like 40 miles on a Saturday when I was like 12. (laughs) So 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 I think um, to answer your question in, in a in another level, you know, even deeper is is knowing from a very, very young age. That, that you have the right to be happy. That that I was searching for happiness, not material things. Okay. And dad always said to me, I, I was a little bit older, maybe 15, 16, when we had the conversation then about work and career and maybe getting married and buying a house one day. And my dad said these words to me, okay? He said, Look, whatever you do in life, make sure you collect experiences, emotions, friendships. Okay, because all of those feelings and emotions and friendships, that's what we take with us when when we when we when we pass on. Okay, the house, the car, the shoes, the holiday home, the yacht, the watch, the shoes, whatever. We then hand those items back. Okay, so interesting you say that, because some of my um, in my third book, which is called going to be called Living an Inspired Life, I talk about the six core principles that our lives are based upon. And not that I'm going to go into too much detail here, but basically the three most important that should be worked on and treated as a million dollar business are your person is your personal development, your intimate relationships and your health. Because if you give attention and consciousness to those three areas, the rest of it takes care of itself. But if you're so focused on the, the lifestyle or the money or the career, we've all been fired, we've all, we've all lost money, we've all lost a home or something. But when you lose the intimacy in your relationships and when you lose your health or you, or you don't personally develop, that's a lot harder to come back from. So your father's advice was just perfect. It was spot on. And, and the one thing I can relate my dad to, well, two things, actually. The first thing, without giving too much away about British cycling right now, when I met Professor Steve Peters, who is the author of The Chimp Paradox, yes. and, I sh- and I shared with, you know, with Dr. Peters everything that my dad had shared with me when I was a kid, okay? And he said to me, your dad, you know, your dad was 20 or 30 years ahead of his time. Amazing. Okay? Honestly, and and I think the second thing, you know, in terms of um, learning, personal development, was learning about the Maslow hierarchy of needs, okay, but taking it to the next level, because everybody's different. Some people prefer to have optimum health 
over financial health, for instance. Um, some people prefer to have lots of friends and, and no materialistic things. So, so it, it, it's, it's about the balance, isn't it? Yeah, it's a different balance, different priorities, you know. So I think when I got married, just to sort of set up the next, the next sort of part of this podcast, you know, it, it was a wonderful time in my life. Okay, you know, in the in the nineties, you know, working, earning, living with my family, with my daughter, you know, who was an angel, and you know, my ex-wife, you know, it was a great a great marriage, you know, it really was. But I never took my eye off the ball with regards to fitness and sport. Okay. Because that passion, you know, that-, that passion it was just running through my veins, you know. Yeah. It's your purpose. Yeah. Okay. We didn't know it back then, Joanne. <laughs> well, you do now. You do now. <laughs> Let's fast forward a little bit. So here we are. You're married. You've got an incredible life and the sport's calling again. Okay. So it's, 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 I take it you then did sport all the time or you, or you. I, yeah, I think it was after about, um, do you know what? I'd want to say about 10 years of being married. Um, I, I just said to my ex-wife at the time, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to do something different that I've never done before, because one of the key messages that I've always lived by is that I don't want to get to the end of my life and have any regrets, okay? Because even though you know later on in life, the one thing that we um, that we hopefully have is health, yeah. but the one thing we don't have is time. Yeah. Because by then, the time is gone. We don't have another 10 or 15 years to achieve certain things, okay? So is this where the paragliding came in? So I, I wanted to start paragliding, okay. okay? I also wanted to start racing triathlon, okay? Right. Because it's something I, I'd always wanted to try and achieve. Didn't have the time, didn't have the, res- the resources, you know? So my... And there was this, this, this doubt because people have been saying to you, what makes you think that you could be a professional athlete? Yes and no. Okay. I take on people's opinions, okay, okay. but then I, I, I put them away in cupboards. Yeah. Yeah, okay. you pass them when they're not needed. Until I need to open that drawer and take have a look it. at the opinion and think, mm, yeah, they did have a point there. Okay. Okay, and then close okay. the drawer. Good then. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... It was the paragliding and the triathlon that opened doors to to meet different people that I'd never met before. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and this is something that I coach on now is having belief in in the system. So in other words, belief in what other people have done, yeah. belief in the process, belief in the in the uh, the organization, for instance, um, and belief in yourself. Okay, so when you bring those pillars together, it, it, it's an incredible experience. Okay, it really is. So I qualified as a paragliding pilot. I started training early mornings, late evenings. And at the time, the balance was okay. Okay, but then my ex-wife and I, we just sort of grew apart. Now, some people may think, well, you know, maybe I should have been there and done more with my family. But I did. I did everything I could for my family. It was just people change, okay? People, people change, you know? And we grow, and we don't always grow at the same rate. Very much so, you know? And, 
you know, my ex-wife and I had a discussion and we said, okay, let's just part company, you know, halfway through our, our adult lives, shall we say. And, uh, and that gave me the opportunity then, you know, to move to Cardiff, you know, from the wonderful mining town that obviously, you know, is Tradiga, um, and got divorced, you know, at the age of 36. And that was just a completely new journey for me then, you know, which gave me more time to, I suppose, you know, race triathlon and certainly more time then to, uh, to enjoy more paragliding time, you know? Okay. And so take me to that day. So, so I think, um, for the listeners, you know, if there's any paragliding pilots listening or maybe even any triathletes, you know, you, you, you'll understand that the feeling you get, for instance, you know, let's pick paragliding to start with, you know, when you get that feeling of flying, okay, that Peter Pan moment, there is nothing like it. In my opinion, there's nothing like it. When your feet leave the floor and you start to fly and you become weightlessness, it's incredible. You know, it really is. It's expansive, right? It is so expansive. Well, well, yes and no. Like feeling almost like you're one with the universe, looking, just looking down. It's, I, I've never been paragliding, so it, I won't know. But. Like, yeah, it's like being in a swimming pool, okay? okay. It's that, that weightlessness feeling you get, and you're obviously in control, you know? So, so let's fast forward to 2009, Yeah. okay? So let's take the listeners back, you know, let's, um, let's deep dive, you know, into, <coughs> I guess, you know, when, yeah, yeah. When, life, when, when life threw me a massive curveball, okay? And so, I want to ask, um, you're going to share this story, and I know the listeners are going to be on the edge of their seat, but I want to know, was there anything on that day within you giving you a foreboding feeling, like this is not the day to go paragliding? Was there, was there anything within your psyche saying to you, something doesn't feel right about this? Unfortunately, nothing at all. Okay. okay. And, 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 and this is, this is why I enjoy sharing, um, my openness, my authenticity, you know, my thoughts and feelings, because, you know, I'd been living in Cardiff for probably three years at that point. I had a, a great corporate job, big salary, company car, all the bells and whistles. Okay. And it was a bank holiday weekend. It was the 2nd of May, 2009. Mm-hmm. It was nearly 20 degrees in Wales. It was a wonderful, warm bank holiday weekend. So we'd arranged, you know, with a paragliding club to go fly in for the two days. Yeah. And I set off that morning, Saturday morning, about 8 a.m., got all my kit ready, jumped in the car, breakfast, you know, and on the way down to Rossilli, which is in the, you know, the Gower Peninsula, um, you know, uh, just such a tranquil part of South Wales. You know, if anybody's ever been to the Gower Peninsula, um, <laughs> they, they'll, they'll know what I mean. But if you haven't, then please Google it. Yeah. You know, it's it's the jewel in the crown in, in, yeah. in Wales, you know. So so it was a, a it was just a perfect day. OK, so now the listeners know my childhood. They understand where I've come from. They know my passion. Um, they'll understand that, yeah, life was good. You know, and it was just a perfect day. And there was no sixth sense. There was no feeling of anticipation at all. Okay. I was just really excited to get down to the Gower and start flying, you know. So, so we, we all met. We all had breakfast in the club. There was about 20 of us. 
And, you know, we launched the canopies and we started flying for the day. You know, we had about probably about five hours of flight time, okay. you know, and, and it, it was just perfect conditions. Blue sky, 14 mile an hour headwind, you know, coming in off the Irish Sea. And yeah, it, it was just perfect. You know, it really was. And then about probably about quarter past five that afternoon, one of the pilots who I was sat on the, the hillside with, a friend of mine called Simon, and Simon said to me, oh, we've had an amazing day, haven't we? I said, oh, it's been incredible. You know, lots of pictures, lots of memories, great experiences. And he then said to me, do you know what, Mark? Should we go back up? Oh, really? <gasps> no, no, we'd, ha- yeah, we'd had probably, I think it was probably about five hours of flight time, okay? And I said to Simon, well, we've probably got about an hour left before the sun starts to set, the wind starts to drop, which means then you come down, you know, from the sky for safety, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, okay, why not? Okay. <laughs> and, and we love this this feeling in life, don't we, you know. And uh, and we launched the canopies and off we flew. And about 15 minutes later, I'm flying across the top ridge about 40 feet above the ground and probably doing about 20 mile an hour. And I turned to my left side at about 90 degrees just to face the, the Irish Sea to get more lift off the hillside, you know. And as I turned, my my canopy, my paragliding canopy, you know, just collapsed. Oh, jeez. And it was literally like an umbrella on a windy day. Just went inside out, turned inside out, folded around me. And you can imagine, okay, I'm 40 feet above the ground. Now, I'll share this with you. I just, can't imagine. Just just to break the silence, okay? I didn't do I didn't do any languages in school. I didn't do German or French or or Italian, but there were a few French words as I fell out of the sky, okay? Jesus. And it took me probably 2 minutes, you know, sorry, 2 seconds to think about, you know, what was going on, and within that 2 seconds I'd fell. I remember seeing my flying boots in front of me as I looked down, and then just this almighty thud. And I'll never forget hitting the floor and within half a second, the wind, which was swirling at that point across the ground, you know, reinflated the canopy and dragged me for about 100 metres. Oh, Lord. Now, I was fully conscious. It was like being a rag doll in a washing machine, almost like being dragged by a horse. If anybody's listening to this podcast who's ever been dragged by a horse, you know, it, yeah. it was just unbelievable. So fast. And I remember tumbling and just, you know, smashing my head. And and then after probably, I don't know, maybe eight seconds or however long it was, it, it finally stopped. Were you, were you in were you were you in pain? Were you what was going through your head? I, I'm lying on the floor and I'm staring up at the blue sky. And it was a, a stunning day. I'll never forget. And I'm in no pain. So you're, you're disassociated, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that was close. <laughs> okay. that, that was really close. I no idea. I, I'm thinking. You were about to stand up and get up. Yeah, literally. Now, what they teach you in paragliding is if you have a fall or if you fall over, for instance, whether you're on the ground or if you fall out of the air, 
when you hit the floor and, and you're stationary, you pull in the lines, the paragliding lines, as quick as you can to stop, you know, the paragliding canopy from reinflating. But in my case, it was way too late, okay? So as I tried to sit up, I thought to myself, why can't I get my shoulders off the floor? Oh, and I thought to myself, I, I must be, you know, I must be caught on some bracken or I must be caught on something, you know? And then I looked down my body and both my legs were literally twisted, almost like two pipe cleaners. Oh, Mark. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what, what, what have I done? I thought I'd broken both my legs. There was no feeling. There was no pain. There's no movement. And I'm literally Velcroed to the grass because I landed on grass. Now, to cut the long story short. Did you try the, to move? Did you, did you try? I, I tried to sit up and I couldn't. I physically couldn't get up. So my, my brain, my mind went through the Kobler-Ross change curve in an instant. Mm. The first yeah. feeling was denial. Okay. I, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in any pain. I'm fine. The second feeling, which was shock, okay, which was, holy shit, what have I done? Why can't I move my legs? So I, I grabbed my, yeah, it was my left leg. I grabbed my flying trousers, lifted my leg over to turn into the recovery position, just in case I passed out or if I was sick, okay? Now, one of the pilots who saw me crash he looped down as quick as he possibly could. He unclipped his canopy and he ran over as quickly as he could. And he stood over me and I'll never forget his words because okay. I'm just lying on the floor. I can't move. Yeah. And he says to me, I won't swear, but you can imagine what he said. He said, oh, my gosh, are you still alive? Jesus. I said, Dennis, I, I can't I can't feel my legs. Now, this guy who was fully trained as a medic, he radioed for those air ambulance, who thankfully arrived probably within about 10 or 11 minutes, okay? So they stabilized me with morphine. They placed a neck collar onto me because they knew that I'd done something pretty serious, yeah. you know? And then they airlifted me then, you know, to, uh, to Swansea Hospital that evening, you know? So to say that it was an unprecedented change and a massive curveball was probably an understatement <laughs> so and here's the thing so you're lying there near near death you know legs broken was there at that point any any internal you know from your higher self from your soul any thoughts going through your head or were you just very much in the physical I, I think yeah Two answers. Lying on the grass, I was confused. Yeah. Because I didn't know. You know, my my legs looked fine, albeit tangled. They weren't broken, but they were just, you know, twisted. Yeah. So I, I just couldn't think, why can I not move, but I'm in no pain? <laughs> it was really strange, okay? But then when the paramedics then said to me, look, You've done something pretty serious. We need to get you off this hillside pretty quick. Okay. Fear. Did the fear set in? Not at that point, because I knew I was in good hands. Okay. Okay. And the the Wales Air Ambulance, I'm so grateful. Okay. There's a process in um, 
in sort of uh, in emergencies called the golden hour. So you need to get somebody who's had a near fatal you know, accident. You need to get them into hospital within that one hour. And I was there literally 15 minutes. I was there. Wow. You know? So I'm so grateful to them. You know, I really am. And that evening, I'll never forget that evening in the hospital, lying in the hospital bed, no movement, no pain, you know, um, no feeling, just feeling this calmness. And the reason why I think I had that calmness is because I knew I was in good hands. Okay. This is where the NHS. A trust, you know, an enormous amount of trust in the people who were. A hundred percent. So remember what I said about having belief in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Belief in the process, belief in the organization, which was the NHS. Now having trying to dig deep and find the belief in myself just to stay calm. Yeah. Okay. Just to stay calm. Just trying to evaluate everything that was going on. You could have seriously freaked out. I mean, 100% freaked out. 100%. Yeah. And and I think you were were accessing your strength within. I I think it comes back to, and I've shared this before, you know, with psychiatrists and psychologists, that every tree that I fell out of as a kid, every bike crash I had as a kid, every kick in the shin I had as a kid, (laughs) okay, I, I genuinely feel all those experiences set me up yeah. to stay calm. Yeah. Does that make sense? You know, 100%, because I think, and this is something, our, our journeys are all very different. But what I do believe is that each and every one of us chooses our burdens. Each and every one of us chooses the lessons we need to go through. And it's not so much what happens to us, but it's so much more about our attitude and if you can if you can tap into that internal strength within and if you can start to look at things so what i learned um when i was going through nothing like your situation but for me it was it was the trauma of my breakdown in my marriage and 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 a huge amount of debt and deceit and lies when i was going through that i remember trying to just keep saying what am i being shown here what what do i need to learn from this so 100%. that I can then dig deep within myself and, and so, yeah i completely yeah i completely yeah, 100% so so that evening in hospital i got told that i'd broken my back okay i had an x-ray and an mri scan and the the doctor said to me i'll never forget i'm really sorry mr colborn but you've broken your back you've got a huge thoracic fracture at T12, you know, the T12 vertebrae has literally split in half. I said, okay. He said, unfortunately, I've got more bad news for you. I said, sorry. Really, pal? <laughs> he said, unfortunately, the, the, the spinal surgeon is on holidays. Okay. We, we, we don't have a surgeon to operate on you. And that, beautiful people, is where we're going to end today's conversation with Mark. Picture the scene. He has just been told he has a broken back and that there is no surgeon available to perform what is no doubt the most critical surgery needed. Are you on the edge of your seat? I know I am. I really am. Be sure to tune into next week's episode, which is on Friday, the 11th of February, with myself and Mark, to hear how he came back from a broken back 
to breaking records on the track and becoming a gold medalist. I wish you all a wonderful weekend. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, know that you have such tremendous personal strength and power within and that you are a truly beautiful being. For now, much love.